Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Andrew Hume. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. And uh, I won't lie to the to the listener. This is this is a take two, and I'm grateful for Andrew to uh, come on board. We did record a very a very lengthy podcast face to face, and despite that being, um, you'd think that that variable would make it really easy. Uh, unfortunately, my sound files were terrible, so it, uh, it made listening to it very difficult for those that have tried. So I'm grateful for those that have, and this will hopefully add some new and bring to the fore so you can hear it, what we discussed in that first one. So, what... It's what the abbreviated version, isn't it? <laughs> well, we've not started yet, so it could end up being the same length. All abbreviated. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's certainly not the abridged. Um, so we are here to talk about The Devil Outside, your new movie, are we not? Yep. Now, uh, I catch you a week after some screening, so what, what's the position in terms of seeing The Devil Outside now? Uh, well, it's had its short UK theatrical run, um, limited release, as it were, um, and it, now we're basically in the process of getting it on the streaming services. Uh, so it should be by about a month or so, it should be on being able to be streamed. So Excellent. hopefully... Uh, and everybody who wants to watch it should be able to watch it. So, let's give them a reason to watch it. What's what's the brief synopsis of The Devil Outside? Oh, now you're asking. Um, okay, it's, uh, it's a kind of um, critique of religion in some ways. It's about life in a born-again Christian family. It's about uh, the confusion that reigns in a child's head due to the kind of archetype that religion puts in there. It's... Um, it's a metaphysical struggle for a soul. It's um, it's the boy going off the rails. It's um, it's a family drama. It's a story of everyday madness. There you go. And where and where and where is it set? It's all set in Nottinghamshire, um, the, the badlands of North Nottingham, um, a kind of ex-mining community, if you like, mm-hmm. um, where. Uh, it's a kind of devastated landscape that was once um, thriving and now isn't. And into this landscape comes a preacher who uh, wants to kind of get everybody believing in something. Um, and that's the kind of B plot, really. The main plot is really that this boy questioning his religious upbringing uh, and the hilarity that ensues because of it. Uh, so, yeah, there you go. Now, as I remember from our first conversation, one of the inspirations for this was your was your infamy at school for being the boy that discovered a uh, dead body in the woods. Um, well, let's, I'll just stop you there. Infamy, I think, is slightly wrong. I was popular for about a week. 
because I found a dead body. Yes. So. <laughs> okay. So you were you were the celebrity of school for a week for for the, for, the, for the small for the small feet of a dead body being found. Yeah, exactly. I was eleven years old actually, and I found a dead body in the local woods. This was in the days when you were allowed to play in the woods. And um, yeah, I, kind of years later when I came to write another film, I wanted to use this kind of this thing that happened to me as a plot device in the film, mm. um, which I kind of think it works to quite great effect, but I don't want to expand upon that too much because it, it would be a bit of a uh, spoiler, wouldn't it? Really? It would, but what I was going to say was, what I was going to ask is, how does an experience like that living, living inside you sort of come out as something you think, oh, I can draw on that creatively? Uh, I guess you, you, you know, all the things that's happened to all of us in the past are still in your head, particularly your first kind of 20 years on the, on this planet. I think they're really etched in your mind. And I think when you open yourself to going to go and exploring the things from your past and, and kind of expose, you know, looking at the demons of your past, if you like, um, that it, it just seemed like it was a really relevant thing that had happened to me that I could use this uh this dead body in some way mm. and I don't think it's unusual for writers or any you know any creative people to dig into their own kind of minds or their psyches and, and explore these things particularly artists I mean it's what, it's what artists do isn't it yeah 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 I, I didn't have a problem with it. I mean I did at the time it was not a terrifying thing at all um it was actually kind of quite amusing like I say it made me popular for a week but um it was, you know, and in those days, kind of victim counselling was a kind of call from the local coppers going, you're right, son. <laughs> yeah, all right. Okay. Well, give us a call back if you've got any problems. And and that was it. You know, nowadays, now it would be 10 years of therapy for finding a dead body. But um, yeah. <laughs> I guess you just got with it in those days. Um, and, you know, as such, it wasn't that big a deal, to be honest. It was quite entertaining. Um, oh, not dead body in that way that kids are. But... Mm. I kind of turned it in the film. I turned it into something quite different. Um, so the film is not autobiographical in purely autobiographical. It's kind of loosely autobiographical, really. I've, I've dramatized it as filmmakers tend to do. Indeed. Um, Cause also the other, the other element that would be, I guess, autobiographical in the sense is that your own mother was herself a devout Christian. Uh, and still is. Yeah. And so is my father. And, uh, you know, I just took that experience of it. It's more really the, the feelings of being in that, you know, for me as a child, it was a kind of religiously oppressive household because Jesus was kind of there all the time. Mm. He was like a character in the house. And I found that kind of stifling and overwhelming um, in a way. So it, I think it's just really I, I wanted to use those feeling that that feeling of kind of overbearing religiosity. Um, as a, as a way of exploring, I think the issues that I feel around that are around religion and particularly evangelism, I suppose. Mm. Um, you know, really, it's to do with what on earth do you put. You know, when you teach children that this is the truth, and then they find out it's not the truth, that actually there are many other ways of looking at the world and all that kind of thing, and none of it actually exists in reality. Then. What are you doing to those children? You know, what are you putting in a child's head? I mean, it's all right to say, oh, Father Christmas, you know, that's it's like this illusory, slightly magical thing. Well, you know, kind of, you know, the, you know, the New Testament and all that kind of stuff and even the Old Testament. I mean, it's, it's a fairy story, basically. It's been handed down over age, over the ages and, and yet it's still treated as if it's, 
truth. And I find that kind of astonishing. And I, I wanted to explore that idea of why is this truth and, and have a child question that really, question their own background. Because it's kind of something I never did at the time, I suppose. I, I just ran away. I turned my back on it and shut the door and just ran off and didn't confront it. And I suppose I'm now doing that in the form of a film. Indeed. And it's like the what's interesting about the kind of religious zealot idea of and certainly the mother is is more a zealot than the father in, in your story is if you were to get sort of you know um high-ranking priests and vicars and whatnot part of their experience of being who they are is the element of doubt they fight they fight doubt all the time whereas what's interesting about the, the, the kind of zealot believer is that there is no doubt and that comes across quite strongly. Again, that's that's where when it, when a, when someone who doubts nothing is telling a child this is absolute, when even the highest ranked religious people will go, well, there's, you know, there's some doubt, and that's what we wrestle with in terms of religion. Um, and I, I think, mean, I think you, yeah, sorry, go on. I was going to say, and I think you you sort of show that hair trigger between the two uh, in 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 the in the arrival of um, of David, the, uh, the, the the lay preacher who brings this this new zeal for for God. And the 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 preacher, the woman who's sort of looking after the church, as it were, uh, who's sort of a bit like this is a place where we, you know, we say hello to God and we and the community comes together. We're not here to uh, to um, for much self sacrifice beyond that. Yeah, well, that's you know, that's kind of what I wanted to do. Really, I, I wanted to sort of show those two sides that that there are, you know, within, I think from outside of Christianity, we tend to think everybody's the same, mm. but they're not at all. Everybody thinks differently. And some people do. Some people don't accept doubt. And some people, a lot of Christians actually do accept doubt as part of it and questioning as part of it. Now, they're, they're kind of a bit more broad minded, I suppose. What I've found anyway, mm. um, although still the sign, the kind of leap of faith that they you know there's still the language talking about this character called jesus as if he's a real person and that's what i kind of have a fundamental problem with i don't think he's a real he's not a real person he's a dead person mm. <laughs> it, so it you know all of these issues are still in my head after all this time you know and i suppose just confronting them is is a way of getting rid of them in a way but they're still there you know they're, they're there forever you know i'll never get rid of them i can rail against them or question them or do whatever but um they're still there and i suppose that's ultimately my point really is like you stick that in a child's head and it's you know it, it's kind of wrong to me really wrong so in that sense is 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 it is it, a, it it would feel and certainly the way the drama plays out it it it's tantamount to child abuse in a way but in in a, in a way that's socially acceptable it would appear i mean child abuse is such a strong word and it it, mm. it brings up all sorts of kind of images and ideas and I don't think I'd necessarily call it that I think it's kind of benign in a in a in a way it's a lot more benign than that but it it, it is invasive I think mm. is the way I kind of look at it well there's an element of there's, there's 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 certainly the element of indoctrination which is abuse isn't it even if you don't call it and obviously child abuse is loaded mm. you're right but I'm just thinking in terms of how your drama plays out there's certainly um Robert is a victim of the way his parents lead their life. Yeah, again, it's a, you're saying these words, I'm kind of thinking, God, abuse, victim, I, you know, and I, I, 
I think they're very strong words, and I'm not sure that I... I think he's just a product of circumstance more than anything. I think okay. it's just how it is. I certainly didn't want anybody to feel sorry for him. I just think, well, this is how you deal with this stuff, because I certainly don't want anybody to feel sorry for me, because I, I actually had quite a good childhood in a, in, in a way. I was kind of... Mm. It was very secure, you know, when I look at look at kind of childhoods. I think, well, you know... You, you, you need kids to be confident and I think well I came out of it with a lot of confidence so it must have been all right you mm. know but um it's it's it, they're kind of inflammatory words aren't they kind of victim abuse and all that kind of thing and I I kind of not sure I really subscribe to them um just it doesn't seem that it doesn't fit quite well in you know my idea of the whole thing mm. because actually it's kind of okay really <laughs> in some ways you know, I, th I think compared to, say, Jehovah's Witnesses or people or some of the really strict ones, um, I think, you know, you could you maybe could apply that to, to that. But certainly not my upbringing wasn't that. Um, oh, yeah, no, no, this isn't about your upbringing. I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to focus on the story I watch on the film because uh, sure, I, yeah. I don't know that much about your upbringing other than what you've what you've shared with me so um yeah. so for me it's that that it's hard all right it's it, for me it's as a viewer it's hard not to see robert a victim you may not have wanted to to uh portray him that conscious of your own experience but i suppose victim is that is maybe the wrong word and survivor is probably the better word because he's not broken by it he's more confused and has to almost like a puzzle has to work has to work his way through <laughs> with yeah. the contradiction of here's the adults who are authority and here's the adults behaving like lunatics as far as I understand the world now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let's, let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you, but I think you portray that well with, with the, almost like the, the sort of secondary uh, indoctrination, which is the, or, or even sort of um, massaging of the belief ego that sort of David the preacher plays with the mother. So it's almost like there's a, you, you, even within the household, you begin to see there's different levels of relig religiosity, religiousness, um, in the sense of how yeah. the father behaves and how the mother behaves around around Robert. Um, but more importantly, I think for this story is that you bring in almost like as if it's like a ghost to to Robert. You bring in a cynic who is Marcus, uh, and he he almost is everything we want to think and say, isn't he? Yes. I mean, he's deliberately that character that you go, well, he's the voice of a lot of people who want to just kind of laugh at the ridiculousness of this mm. situation and actually be prof profane and puerile and all those things that kids are. You know, he gets the best lines because he's mm. kind of like a Viz character, really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he gets, because he's a child, he gets to have very on PC lines about, you know, the kind of girls in the church gagging for it and all that kind of thing. Um, and it's, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's quite fun to write those characters. It's, um, uh, but he's very much a foil, and he, he's, he's kind of like the, you know, of course I play him like a little devil, and he's a naughty, you know, he's not the devil, he's just a naughty boy. He's, mm. um, and I, I really wanted to play with the idea of people who are supposed to be one thing, like the preacher's supposed to be good, but is he good or mm. is he bad? We're not, you're never quite sure. And, and the, the little devil comes in, and you go, well, is he a devil or is he actually a force for good in this? You know, we don't really know this. And I think the idea of bringing good and evil out in the form of people, I think, was quite interesting because I, I think that's how religious people think. They think very black and white that actually 
you're either good or you're evil. And I think one of the things you learn growing up out of that household and coming to terms with it all is that actually the world is a sliding scale of grey. Mm. You know, it's not just black and white. And there's no room for any of that greyness in that in that world. It's either one, you're either with us or you're against us. You know, and it's in, it's the same thing in that idea that, well, if you're not saved, you're going to hell, which mm. adds this whole layer of pressure on it. You know, that and the situation, that's why they... People like that feel that they have to go and convert people because they feel a huge amount of pressure to con- save souls. And they're doing it from because they think it's the right thing to do and it's a good thing to do. But, of course, everybody else just turns around and go, don't tell me what to think. You know, how dare you? <laughs> you know, and I think I wanted to just explore all those angles around this subject. So I had to inhabit the heads of every single person from the supposedly, you know, the kind of preacher to the to the devil, to all the people in between and the ones who don't say anything as well. You know, you have to write all of this from a very rounded perspective. And actually, it's a really nice way of writing is it's kind of liking all your characters, um, which I think is something that let's I don't want to name names, but I mean, I certainly put a lot, a lot of it's easy to fall into like, OK, there's the good guy, there's the bad guy. OK, mm. when actually it's more interesting when the good guy is more nuanced. He's got, he's got, he's flawed, and it's more interesting when the bad guy's got, is also flawed, you know, but in a kind of more interesting way. I, I think, I think as writers, we have to kind of explore that idea more instead of turning to cliches and stereotypes. And I, to- and I totally agree with you. I mean, I, 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 I made a short <laughs> film trying to l- look at look at my view on religion, and me and the director, we went into it like with full, you know, with full full throttle, like we're going to, we're going to point out how bad religion is. And then the more we got into it, the more we tried to write about it, the more people we interviewed to understand it, the less we felt justified (laughs) going, going, religion's bad. Non-believers are good. You know, that binary doesn't exist. That it doesn't, it doesn't exist apart from in our heads. And to try and dramatize it, it's almost to tell a lie in a way. Um, and we, we found ourselves moving away from it and bringing more about, looking more at the idea of asking questions and doubt, which is a much more interesting way to see it than one is good, one is bad, which is obviously falling into the, like you described there, it's almost like we fell into religion's trap, which is reduce everything to good or bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's been interesting screening it to um, kind of a big audience in Nottingham, for instance, because... Mm. Because people laugh in kind of inappropriate places because actually there's a scene in it where lots of people confess and the characters on screen are all having different emotions and reactions to this and the audience are doing the same and you know while it's actually quite moving in some ways um you know these people kind of actually standing up and just you know getting over a barrier and actually saying i'm having a really hard time you know, actually people laughing at that is kind of slightly disturbing. Um, but it's it's exactly the reaction that I, I want people to be. I want that confusion. I like scenes where you don't really know what you're supposed to think in it. You know, you're... No, no, I, I, I'd echo the, the, the reactions you talk about there for me. It is that thing where you, your initial response is to, is to go, what on earth would make you want to just tell everybody that? And then the second thought is, if I did it, what would I say? Yeah. <laughs> Which is, which is, you're catching yourself in a trap even then, aren't you, in your mind, and suddenly it's not clear because yeah. of what you see in there. So um, your two main characters, as you described, I was interested, the screen I saw at the ICA, you described Marcus as the antagonist. Now, I thought that was an interesting identification of Marcus's character. Now, we've already said he's a little devil, but for me, 
I saw him as the you know the gateway to enlightenment, and if not if nothing else, <laughs> not not the antagonist by any stretch. Why why do you why do you? I mean, you've the, what you've said this morning even sort of alludes to the fact that you were looking at everybody in the round. But why why would you think of Marcus as an antagonist? I'm only thinking of him as the antagonist in in the sense that the family is a unit. So he's the antagonist to that family. Okay. So in 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 the main character Robert's life, yes, he's he's a kind of force for good in a way because even though he comes across as the opposite, he's he's the one that kind of is the catalyst. He's the one that could causes him well actually allows him to have fun you know um for the first time um but actually the idea that he's the antagonist it comes from here's the family here's the family unit you know the kind of nuclear family unit thing and there's a shot at the beginning where they're kind of behind steam glass and he just looks out on the world and that's the idea that they're in a bubble really mm. so antagonist from the point of view of the family i suppose it's kind of, maybe it's a trip of the tongue mm. maybe that's Maybe you've you've discovered something there about me that. Uh... <laughs> well, it, may, it makes sense like it makes sense that way. Wake up soon, yes. <laughs> it does make sense that way, though. The idea of him him being the destabilizer of what was a family unit. It's almost like as yeah. as um, as Robert gets older, he learns more about the world beyond his house, as you do. I mean, you beautifully show it in in a, in a really micro way with. Here's his house on one side of a suburban street and across the other side of the road you have a family who have no real role in the film beyond showing how the other half lives, which is they sit on the front lawn drinking wine. Yeah, and laughing. At <laughs> and moment. laughing and laughing at things and, and having fun, whereas obviously Robert, if he's looking at how people live, he's going, well, why don't my family, even though he never says it, you kind of understand that he's looking at them going, why aren't my family like that? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and that's to me, that's what it felt like looking out my bedroom window. It's like other people seem to have different lives. That's what it felt like. Mm. And even there's another scene. There's another tiny little shot. Actually, it's not even a scene of just kids walking down the street, kicking a football past his window. And he's just looking at them like he's not part of it. And that's really, to me, how it feels like in that world that you're just not quite a part of it. You're slightly removed from everything. And um, it's a very, it's, it's at the time you can't, you, you kind of, you're aware of it at the time. And then later you understand what it is. You understand that on a street you're different to everybody else because you're the one religious family on the street. And, you know, certain things you're not going to get invited to because maybe you don't, you know, you don't drink and you don't swear. So or you don't smoke or whatever it is. Mm. And so you don't get invited to parties or people don't really want you around because they might be being judged by you or something like that. It's, it's kind of an odd situation as a kid, I think really strange. No, it sounds it. It sounds it. So, uh, talking to kids, you've, you've yeah. got Noah Carson as Robert and David Frogson as Marcus. The Daniel, two. Daniel Frogson. Oh, sorry. Daniel, my own writing. Sorry. My, my terrible handwriting. Daniel Frogson, sorry, as Marcus. Yeah. Now, Noah is a trained actor. And was cast in a kind of, I guess, what you would call a, the normal way, route of casting. And Daniel was uh, street casting. As is that the right yeah. expression? Yep. So can you can you can you tell for the listener? T- tell I think we can all appreciate the idea of bringing people in and auditioning them and seeing them. But taking someone who's not trained and going, this is the right person. How do you how do you approach that compared to the normal casting route? Well, 
I mean, with with that with that particular character, I'd written him based on a character from my past, and I knew exactly what I wanted in my head. I didn't ever think we'd find him. So when we had an, we, you know, we had a casting, kind of, we had a scout, I guess, who went out just to look for people under the description, and you know, all these lads came back and they're all kind of like the naughty lads of the estate and all that kind of thing. And then you test them, and but there's, I got a phone call from. The casting director said, oh, I think we found him. You better get back here. And there, there was this young lad, you know, who was just holding court with lads who were two or three years older than him. Right. And he was of attention. He was the one. He was just being really rude and really outrageous. As, as I, you know, he was doing it on purpose just to shock people, just to get a reaction. And it was it was fascinating to watch him. And actually, the thing is, he could. He, he was just himself. So to me, he's just himself on the screen. That's all he needs to be. So my job as a director, first of all, was to cast him. But secondly, was to adapt what I'd written to mm. how he would say it himself. Because obviously, my old man language, you know, that's kind of gone through a filter of years. It's, written, it's kind of written from the 70s, but from 40 years later. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of slightly weird language. And also, you know, it, it's provincial but it's now i live in london so it's like you know even even the language has changed the actual dialects changed in the meantime so it was a question for me of listening telling him what the intention was and what i wanted him to do and him bringing his own language to that so for instance there's a funny little moment when there's this kind of sunday school teacher gives a little you know sermon about um uh what god i can't even remember who it is now the, the, the when they might when they God asked somebody to get, go on the altar, you know, and it's a test of faith, right? Yeah. And at the end of it, Marcus kind of just goes, you know, oh, what the fuck was all that? You know, it's a whole new category of bollocks. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just a brilliant line, and it's his line. I didn't write that. I couldn't write a line like that. Mm. A whole new category of bollocks. It's lovely, you know. <laughs> and how, what, what, and what are the challenges then of directing somebody? So you found him, and. He's collaborating yeah. with you to make to bring the character even more to life, and then how is he to direct? Because obviously you've still got, you've got the idea of obviously a film a film functions by everybody doing their job and 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 mm. doing what they're told, as it were. But obviously it sounds to me like part of Daniel's appeal was that he was a little outside that box. So how what were the challenges there for you? Uh, I mean, it's quite a lot of challenges in a way because what you want is to kind of harness his natural energy but then you're putting him in an unnatural situation where he has to hit marks and mm. deliver lines on time and all that kind of thing so it's quite it was quite a challenge for him and consequently for me because you know you've done three takes of him walking up having to hit a mark look around and then deliver the line and he couldn't do it you know he's bored all of a sudden it's like a, and everything just loses its energy at that point so you have to kind of find ways around that and you know that was quite it was quite challenging um you know it's really just to keep the freshness um and all the you know there's a lot i think there are a few tricks to directing kids um none of which i knew so i had to make them up myself but one of one of them is don't give them sugar before the take you know <laughs> reward them after <laughs> really yeah Quite a nice bit of advice, isn't it? It is. It is. I think we'll, uh, we'll we should put that in, in, in a bullet point memo later on the website. Um, <laughs> now, one of the things that that appeals to me about both Snow and Paradise, your, your previous film, and this one is is the look and feel that you lend to the UK um, canvas that you're you're making your film on. Um, 
I think there's a there's a very there's, it, there's a there's a there's a very cinematic feel to what you do. I mean, in particular, um, with with what you do around Nottinghamshire, the mm. the sort of and I think I said this the first time, and it's like the mundanity of a suburban street is not exactly these. I don't think it's the easiest thing to capture, but you but you capture it in a way that makes that mundane interesting. And equally, the sort of abandoned coal fields become these sort of uh, behemoth <laughs> landscapes that dwarf <laughs> anything that you know that are u- their uselessness is that is their looming presence, isn't it? They're just they're just yeah. they're just there doing nothing, but they're huge <laughs> in scale. And and equally, you've got scenes around a dinner table you know at the extreme and, and they all feel um equally c- c- cinematic so what what was your conversations like with mark wolf your uh, your dop in terms of and obviously he, not obviously at all but for the listener he was also the dop on on stone paradise yeah. so clearly you've got form so what was your conversations like with mark about what you wanted I to mean, achieve well i mean if we go back to snow when i first worked with mark i yeah. mean i just had an instinct that he was the right person he's a very good brilliant handheld dp mm. uh, cameraman and but also he he's kind of got this flair for doing light you know kind of natural lighting very easily so that to me was re- a really good combination um plus we talked a lot about how to shoot it in terms of getting the most cinematic feel and the first thing that came up was the idea of using anamorphic lenses mm-hmm. and uh, you know for anybody who doesn't know what an anamorphic lens is it, it it's basically the edges are kind of go blurry and it, it just makes everything look rich and kind of sumptuous and like a painting really. And uh, I think we said this before that the, basically the way to tell is that you, the circles of confusion in the back, like if you see a light in the background that's out of focus on a, on a normal lens, it's circular, but on an anamorphic lens, it's um, an oblong. Mm. And it's, it's just the way that it, just the way the lens is and a straight line will veer off and bend on the edges of a, of a wide shot that's how you can tell you're using them but it just it just focuses your attention on on the center of the screen and makes everything else kind of just that slightly bit blurry in the way that a kind of old-fashioned painting they'd concentrate on the face and have it in absolute precise detail but everything else they didn't want to spend the time doing that detail so it was all slightly impressionistic mm. and i think that idea of using anamorphic lenses in but you know, in in kind of you know very British environments, is is slightly unusual um, because I'm not you know we're not dealing with Hollywood films here you know and and kind of standard material. You're dealing with what is you know at times kitchen sink drama. Yeah. Um, so it makes it look and feel very different, and makes those you know a scene around a dinner table doesn't really feel like a scene around a dinner table. It, it's got a kind of painterly quality to it suddenly. So I think that idea of using light and lenses, Mark is just great at, at, at doing that. And I think we just, you know, we took a leap of faith with these really dodgy ones on snow because we didn't have the money. Um, and, you know, half the time they were out of focus and we couldn't use the shot. But when we when the shot was right, it was really right. Mm. And it just made the film look bigger. It made it look more ambitious and bigger. And it, and even though on snow, I mean, I get the difference between snow and devil, devil really is that snow was a film shot very quickly and in very tight environments because it was shot in london it's hard to do wide shots in london because you've got to clear the use of you know locations and all that kind yeah. of thing and it's time consuming and when you're trying to get things shot really quickly you don't want to do that so snow was a very kind of interior type film uh, you know it's very which suited the subject you know very pressurized 
journey that the character was going on. And then this reaction to that, I wanted the opposite with Devil. I wanted big landscapes, but I didn't want conventional landscapes. So I kind of went and found coalfields, which were the kind of images of my childhood, if you like, when those things were working. And, you know, one of the first places I found was this place called Clipston near Mansfield that added, you know, kind of these double pit heads that just look like they're from another world. I mean, mm. I found out later that there's very few kind of pit heads still left standing, um, but there are one or two still in the north. And these particular ones in Clipston, I found out later, are actually, I think they're the second highest in Europe, and they're, they're actually German built, which, which is why they look so unusual, because mm. they're not the standard kind of pit head that, that everybody's kind of seen. Well, if they can remember them, in fact, or even anybody know what they are anymore, you know. Um, so that was the, that was really the landscape that I wanted the whole film to be shot on. And against that, you've got the nature stuff, which is kind of like a thread throughout the film. And I wanted that as well to be. I wanted the the idea of nature to be in this film about religion because it's kind of like nature is this mysterious thing that everybody else is dealing. So the religious people are dealing in the supernatural while everybody else is dealing in the natural. So I wanted those two levels, really, in the film. And I think, you know, Mark captured them absolutely brilliantly. He's, he's such a great worker. He, you know, we would just go out on our days off just to shoot the countryside, you know, just me and him and an assistant. And it was just brilliant, you know, very... Out of, in, out of interest, how much of the kind of locations, as it were, were on the page and how much was, was what you discovered that you shot to do with being in the area? Well, I kind of did a lot of scouting myself of just driving around and talking to pe- talking to people and and just going and discovering places. So I'd I'd kind of already found Sherwood Forest. I'd found the coal, the co- uh, the two pits that we used in the film. Um, so a lot of it. I mean, the actual house we hadn't found, and in fact, that was a process of going through a lot of different, um, you know, going into a lot of people's houses and. Mm. Uh, Actually, actually, uh, discovering that most people there read the Daily Mail, which was quite shocking. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, they, you know, there were lots of really nice people we met. Who, who, you know, a lot of them used to work in the pits that we were shooting. So it was, it was kind of really interesting. I think the whole process. But in, a lot of it was already I'd already got the idea in my head, but then I had to go and find it. Got you. And. And the woods where he where he finds this dead body are the actual woods that I found the dead body. We we, des- we decided to go to the very woods and uh, we t- we found a spot that was not overgrown. So actually, I thought that was kind of I kind of tied in really nicely. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I interviewed a director called Jason Wingard about shooting a movie called Eaten by Lions um, up in Blackpool, and part of the challenge for him was about was about permissions and and whether it was all right to do this and do that. How much did the local councils and whatever affect your ability to shoot where you were, where you were making the movie? For the most part, they were great about it, to be honest. Um, very, very open and willing to let us go wherever we wanted to. Um, the only difficulty was we had, we had just one day in the pit because it was, a, it was basically due to be um, demolished fairly soon. So it was actually not particularly safe to be in there. And the only... But they were very good with us. They let us go in there for a day and, you know, uh, shoot pretty much where we wanted, uh, and, you know, within reason. Um, but in terms of everywhere else, there wasn't a problem at all, really. Um, you know, when we did snow, it was a lot more about location permissions and shooting on streets and all that stuff. And it's really restrictive, very, yeah. very restrictive. I don't like it. I mean, in some ways, I'd rather shoot gorilla and just 
but you know your location manager is going to throw a complete wobbly about that because they can lose their job if you get caught so they don't want you to do those things and quite rightly so um but it's you know as a filmmaker you just want to just pull you know the fact that nowadays you can just pull your iphone out and shoot something and it's broadcast material you know it's very frustrating when you're towing along 40 people and you know all of that stuff <laughs> <laughs> so in that sense then so what what is so if 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 Snow Paradise was an example of how kind of constrictive it could be, what what is a kind of more relaxed approach then? You still have to get permission to shoot places, but the, once yeah, you've got well, permission, don't, you... don't, do it in don't do it in London. And if you do it, if you do it in, well, you know, if you want for a better way of putting it, the regions, then people are a lot more open. I mean, you've got the use the use of like here in London, everybody's very cynical about it because it's no big deal and they've seen it all the time and all it is is a hindrance to them if you have a film unit on your street. Yeah. You go to a town in Nottinghamshire and everybody's out wanting to know what's going on because and you want to be in it. Yeah, great. You know, that's literally that attitude that because they don't get that sort of thing. It's not common for them. And so and I, I'm of the mind that you just use as many local people as possible because it it helps engagement with the film. It helps the engagement with the community and and they're usually they're really nice people and they're quite happy to be in the film and they tell all their mates and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we found a great, the, the guy who's the DJ in the film, I just happened to be out one night in a, a town and he was just DJing and I thought, oh, I've got to put him in the film, Steve Gadd, he was brilliant. And he's like a local legend apparently. And, and we gave him some lines in the film and he's perfect. You know? Yeah, I mean, I'm, this is a crass comparison. I recently watched uh, Repulsion, Roman Polanski's first first English mm. language film, and there's there's a band. I don't know if you've seen the movie. I saw, I saw it a long time. It was a very very influential movie for me, actually, strangely enough. But it was it's a long time ago that I saw it. But do you do you remember the? Uh, and this isn't the big important part of the movie, but they they're important enough to appear twice. Is the banjo and spoons trio. Oh God, I don't remember that at all. Which they they wander into shot, and and the camera stays with them for the entire time, and then later on they're like a procession going across another street, and you're like, that's that was never in the script. It can't have been, but <laughs> you can imagine somebody Polanski or someone was like, this is these are amazing. Get these on. <laughs> yeah, we're just on the work, way to work one day, come out of the tube, and there's you know. There's the buskers, and you go, oh, I've got to get them in the film. So. Yeah, it was. It's that real sort of like almost like crazy incidental stuff that if you'd seen it walking down the street, you wouldn't bat an eye. Because the camera suddenly focuses on it, it, it makes it all the more important. Well, especially if what you've got in the film is like some kind of all this dark stuff going on, and then you, you know you kind of want to puncture it with some light lightness, and that's an easy way of doing it. Isn't it? Yeah, actually, I'm thinking about it's, it. Yeah, it's, 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 it's akin to. Like like the way you use that family across the road is that you're reminded that the world isn't just this house and this oppressive mother and this confused son. Uh, mm. The world is carrying on. It doesn't need to worry about Jesus or anything. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think it's a really good way of just allowing the audience to kind of get a breather and also get a view that, you know, like you say, life goes on elsewhere and it's not touched by the craziness of, whatever is going on in the repulsion flat or whatever's going on in the devil outside household, you know, it's the, the kind of madhouse that that is, is actually normality going on outside. You know, I think it's a nice way of doing it. it really is. No, totally. Uh, now you, you, you wrote this and you directed it, which is, uh, which is part of the course for a lot of films, but as, as is your profession, you also edited this movie. Yeah. 
Yeah, kids don't do it, I would say. I was going to say, how, from, a, from an editor's point of view, how do you um, keep that objective view of the work as, a, as the editor that you are, plus how do you not remember you as the director going, that took freaking ages to do, I'm not getting rid of it? Well, I, I, it's not so much that problem. It's more to do with, for me anyway, it's more to do with at first it was very easy because it's very familiar for me to edit. As yeah. I've been a film editor for 25 years. Mm-hmm. But the closer we got to actually locking the picture and the film maybe not working in certain areas or, you know, all the usual problems that you have with films, that's when I needed to not be at the front. I needed to be at the back of the room sitting on the sofa being object, as objective as I could. Right. So that was really, a, I mean, for my you know, I, I kind of really needed help at that point. And it's, that's when it, it, I realized in a way it's a bit of a folly to think that I could edit the whole thing. I could edit cut it hard, you know, up to a point, but then I needed to sort of become more objective and stand back. But, uh, and it definitely is, I'd never do that again. Never do it again. So it's who, too, who, it's too who did you, who was, who were your subjective eyes then to help you? Uh, my producer Christine was kind of sitting at the back being me basically as a director which I think was a well I while the director was at the front cutting the film so I think that that was not great it's not a great situation she needed to not be in the room at all um you know so she could just come in completely fresh watch something and give comments instead of having the kind of cut and thrust of discussion that you normally have in an edit suite um, with me so it was all a little bit blurred at that point um, I did have another editor Nicholas who came in um, but he must have thought what on earth's going on here you know? <laughs> <I'll get laughs> these crazies yeah. um, but I know he, he just came in for some advice for like a few weeks but the rest of it was kind of done from, you know I kind of did the rest of it really and it's I wouldn't do it again it's not, not good advice I think to uh, edit your own films so the so the top tip is is to is to tr- avoid as best you can the need to the need to edit your own feature film. I mean, I mean, I should know this, you know, that having been an editor, but basically, there's a reason you have an editor because they're an objective set of eyes who can tell you, well, nobody understands what this t- character's talking about, or yeah. some basic stuff that, you know, this is a bad line of dialogue, or the acting's crap, or just stuff that you. You, you kind of breeze over because you don't want to know the some uncomfortable truths sometimes. And that's often what editors do. They, they just tell you how they see it. And the more objective they are, the better. If they don't, if they don't know the subject, it's actually usually quite a good thing because they can say, well, you know, it's like, well, what's going I don't understand the thing of what's going on here. You know, you need, you need to tell me fundamentally what this is about, you know, so I can go and prepare the audience maybe earlier in the film. You know, so that that kind of advice is really, really useful. But what, what, um, out of interest, though, what were, what were your story discoveries in the edit that weren't apparent in the in the writing? The main one being that I'd actually written too much and that I'd ended up with shooting two films. Okay. Um, so that you know, I had to throw out a huge amount of material, uh, about an hour, over an hour, over an hour's material, and that's quite hard. You know, you, you suddenly you go well. If I'd, have, if I'd have had more time to develop this or if I'd have been a bit more on it at the writing process, then, I'd, I'd you know, that hour of material, that I, sh- I would have had more time to shoot the stuff that it is in the film, mm. in, you know, better. I'd have had, you know, more options for that. 
so that's part of you know it's only my second film i think i'm just learning all the time about what you need in the script and what you don't need in the script you know but i think I, I was going to say i think i remember you saying that from an editor's point of view you you'd you'd value being in, you'd value the input as the editor in anybody's film not not your own being being a script so you can ask questions that you don't have to ask once something's been shot yeah, I mean, as an editor, you, you know, I read scripts as an editor and I, I, I mean, first of all, you're hoping that it's absolutely brilliant script, mm. but the moment it isn't, you start thinking, why isn't this working? Why isn't it working? Because I'm going to have to correct this. So rather than, you know, it needs to be fixed really at the, at the script stage because that's where it costs less and it saves you a lot of heartache. So, so that, that lends me to the question then. So what, what couldn't you see? That innate that meant an hour's worth more of film was shot as as someone who'd written and directed well, it. I, you've got to remember that I was actually writing a personal story in okay. some respects. Yeah, you know, I've said it's loosely autobiographical, but you, when you when you're dredging your own kind of mind for stuff, then you you you've, it's very personal, it's very subjective, and you can't see. Sometimes you can't see the story, and sometimes. You know, I, I kind of like to work in layers, so it's not always easy for a reader to get the handle on what's going on in that. And I think in the film, you know, it's, it's kind of abstract in places. Yeah. You get the feeling that it's, oh, I think I understand what's going on here, but you're never entirely sure. And I, I wanted that deliberately because I wanted a child's eye view of the world, and that's mm. how children kind of think of the world, I think. Um, but it, it, it just, I, I guess it's just... It's just difficult to see your own material sometimes, you know, if, if you're so close to it. Really, you know, it's the one thing that, um, I, you know, I won't be writing this film again, so I don't need to worry about it. <laughs> well, look, one of the things that, that for me, uh, strikes me as interesting, and I had the same, I had some discussion with uh, Deborah, Deborah Haywood about pincushion, is that what is, I guess, I guess if you, you could call it a dark drama, um, I know it's I know Devil Outside is classed as a drama, but there's there's a darkness to it. But also for me, there is there's an emotional violence going on that elevates it to for me as as a horror fan to something in the realm of the horror film. And obviously we've mentioned Repulsion, um which which is very much a psychological film but is very much considered a horror film in two thousand nineteen. Um was was you aware of that of that sort of I guess unintended consequence of what you were making given the subject matter you know supernatural versus real and all that kind of stuff um and then the poor kid stuck in the middle um that really felt like at some points like I was watching a horror film I mean I, I did that on purpose I mean it's, it's deliberate kind of slightly crossing genre yeah. in a way because I, I I think it's something that's been unexplored which is the idea of religion um the stuff that religion is you know the the stuff that's put in your head is is kind of a horror film in its own way. I think you know these ideas of Christ crucified, you know the blood, the suffering, all this stuff. The idea of the devil that he's like going to get into your head and all that kind of thing. I mean, the, I haven't come up with these ideas. These are old fashioned, <laughs> ideas. you know. And I just happened to, as a child, I found them quite creepy and sinister. So. You know, I, I'm just playing with what is already there and going, well, look at what this actually could be. You know, if you take it to an extreme, if you push the fantasy side of it, because the kid kind of lives in a fantasy world, you know. But, of course, these characters are then part of his fantasy 
in a landscape. Mm. So, you know, the, the film could be criticised for not knowing what it is. It's not a horror film. It's not this. It's not that. But, you know, I also would say, well, when you see reviews of films, it's like, well, if people like the film, they go, they call it genre defying. Because it's great, right? To genre defy. Oh, without a doubt, it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't a criticism on my behalf. I think it's. No, I'm not saying it was, but I think in general, when when film is criticised for not being one genre or another, it's because the person's not understanding it. Mm. You know, it's. Um, you know, and it's. I, I kind of flirt with genre. I don't really like genre anyway. I, I just flirt with the idea of it. I like thrillers and I like tension, but um, I don't. I'm not a horror fan, for instance. I don't really like this. I never watched those films, but I kind of like the feeling sometimes in other films, you know, particularly, I guess, David Lynch films. He uses that. He, they're not horror. They're kind of psychological horror films, aren't they, really? Exactly. No, it's, and it's more about tone, isn't it? It's like to, there's one thing to genre defy and then there's one thing to flip genres, I think. I don't think they're the same thing, are they? No, they're not the same thing at all. I mean, if you look at Kill List, for instance, I mean, that flips genres, doesn't it, in the yeah. middle and... You know, you could say, well, is that successful or not? But it, it, whether it is or not, it's still interesting. I found it totally riveting. And, I, I, you know, I'm still thinking about it now, whether it works or not. I mean, but it was a very gripping film. So something about it worked. The producers of that film refer to those that don't like the, the genre shift as third act deniers. <laughs> They've had that much, of, that much of a vehement reaction to that third act shift. Yeah, they've given them a name, the people, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Because I'm with you. I mean, it's it, it, tonally, it was still right, even though genre, if and genres, Christ, what is it? It's only a create marketing creation, isn't it? So you know what you're going to see. Um, it's the category of bollocks, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, penultimate question before I ask the, the final one. Uh, one thing, I, one thing that was really interesting from a, from a, from a film point of view and, and the drama is. Is, is the characters that are kind of the glue to what's going on. And I'm thinking of um, Alex, Al, Alex um, Lowe's role as the father, who, yeah. while saying very little, has a huge impact on what happens, if that makes sense. Yes. I mean, I, I, when I wrote that character, he's very much a quiet northern father. Well, just a, far, you know, a northern guy who wants a mm. quiet life when yeah. you have a kind of... Slightly, slightly dominating mother. You know, it's a very, to me, it's a very familiar character role that the father is just a lot quieter and keeps stuff to himself and, you know, has a kind of more of a private faith, if you like, um, compared to what the mother's, you know, slightly more obsessional role. Yeah. And um, when I wrote that, people were just complaining, well, we don't understand the father. <laughs> and, well, yeah, because the actor's going to do it all. So, and and he does. He's brilliant in it. He's kind of comedy without being comedy. He's he's brilliant. You know, he's, he's absolutely great in it. I mean, Alex himself wanted to put more lines in, and I let him say more lines, and then I took them out again because I thought I'd like him quiet. You know, mm. he's he's really good. He gets to say his little bit at the end, and he reacts, and he has a journey. You know, throughout the film. So it, I, I think he's good to reflect. You know, like the neighbours next door. He's good to reflect on the action, really. Yeah, in in a weird way, and it's, I'm going to use the religious metaphor. You've got you've got um, you've got Marcus the father, and the, the neighbours are like the holy trinity of uh, of of Robert's confusion. <laughs> sort of what he can't say, they're able to show or say, as it were, if that makes sense. 
Yes, exactly. Because I mean, he's a kid who's locked in his own head. Because you know, normally in a film, you've got somebody who the character can talk, you know, the main character can talk to, and you know, in in the worst case, it's the Deus Ex Machina that you know falls from the sky and solves the problems of the film. But in Robert's case, he has nobody to talk to. He's literally trapped. And I, you know, I was kind of, I did that on purpose. It, it, I, it made it very, very hard, you know, because it, it doesn't make it easy on the audience to understand what's going on. But to me, that's more truthful of how kids in that environment probably are, because I don't think they can talk to people because they feel quite kind of battered and isolated in a way, you know, battered by the kind of religiosity of it. Mm. And, um, and then, but also kind of stuck in their own heads because they don't. He's also he's trying to find out who he is. He doesn't know, and he's got stuff going on in his body that confuses him. You know, all this stuff going on. It's a kind of perfect storm, really, in a way, for me. Totally. You know, totally. Character. Well, look, final question. Um, yep. You 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 drew on personal experience. You even shot the film sort of local to where you grew up. How how much of a cathartic experience has it been for you to make the Devil Outside, if at all? Um, I think it's been hugely cathartic, actually, hugely. Um, I mean, you know, people do ask me in these Q&As, oh, well, has your mother seen it? And I say, well, she doesn't want to see it because I think she'd find it very upsetting. And I think that is true. And I probably now I don't really want her to see it. But she did watch the trailer hmm. and say, oh, no, I don't think I want to watch that. Film. I don't want that sort of stuff in my head, which I thought was ironic. Um, <laughs> but it, in a way, the cathartic bit of it is that, you know, that all of this, I use the analogy that, when you leave that kind of world behind as a kid, as a teenager, you, you know, I, I personally put it all in a box in the attic of my head and shut the door and then move town, and, you know, move house, move town, move city. And then eventually you work your way back to it and go, well, what's in this box, you know, and you open it and you kind of go, well, mm, I'm not sure there's anything in there, actually. What, what was the kind of fuss all about? And in a way that's, that is the catharsis of it is that I don't really feel there's anything to kind of think about with it anymore. You know, I've kind of done it. That's what it feels like. I mean, I've, it's, you know, I've kind of pushed in a way of therapy, in a way I've kind of pushed it out there on, and other people can kind of deal with it in a way. It's kind of cleansed my head, I think. Well, that's good to hear. I think <laughs> if, if an artist can clear their head, then that's a good place to be. Um, so finally then let's remind people when, when and how can you see this? Uh, okay, so The Devil Outside, um, that we have occasional screenings now. Uh, the main run of screenings was finished. Um, it will be on streaming services, as far as I know, um, mid to late April. That's in about a month's time. Um, there may be a DVD release, who knows? Um, but yeah, it will be available to watch uh, end of April. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.